Happy Monday and welcome to Kingdom Testimonies. This is Lisa. It is Monday, October 18th, 2021. And so today I want to read James Hudson Taylor, Pioneer Missionary of Inland China. <clears throat> this book was written in 1925. Um... It's by Gloria G. Hunnix of the Gospel Trumpet Company, Anderson, Indiana. Um, I have always loved antique books. <clears throat> I've always loved books. But when my grandmother was younger and I was a little kid, she had a corner cabinet that was full of books. Now to her at the time, I'm sure they weren't antique. They were just favorite books of hers. Um, but she had a whole collection of Zane Gray, if any of you know Zane Gray. Um, and those were my grandpa's books. He was a cowboy. He was a literal, actual, real cowboy. <clears throat> Born and raised on a ranch. Ran a ranch when he was older. Um, you know, before there was all the technologies and everything, and they did everything by hand. But in that bookshelf, the bookshelf was actually made by my father for my grandmother. And it was just a corner shelf. It had three shelves. It was maybe, uh, maybe about chest high. And then in the middle, it had a glass door. So in the middle, she displayed some little, you know, <clears throat> knickknacks that of course were antique but they weren't antique when she put them in there <clears throat> but I would go through her books every time we would go over there she lived like two or three blocks from where I grew up and whenever we'd go over there for holidays or if she was just going to watch us kids I would always ask her <clears throat> if I could go and look through the books on her bookshelf and she always said, yeah, because she knew I was careful with books. So fast forward 70 years, 75 years, um, she passed away. And that was in uh, 1994. And we were all very sad. We were very close to her and Grandpa. And so they did a reading of the will type of thing, even though they were not rich people but in the will she left me the bookcase with all the books in it and I was really surprised she never told me she was going to do that and um, I was really surprised I was elated so I got all of those old books and a lot of them I gave, gave to my aunt who was really surprised and she was like oh I wanted some <laughs> So I was like, no, you can, you can definitely have some of them, <clears throat> but I kept most of them. And I don't know, that, that just goes to my love of old books. Um, so this one's from 1925. And <clears throat> like I said, it's written by jo Gloria G. Hunnix. The dedication page says, to my little son, William Eugene, whose grandparents were members of the China Inland Mission and whose father, 
studied in their schools at Chifu, and the city of whose birth is now the last resting place of our hero. This book is dedicated. So apparently her, the author's grandparents, were part of this mission. It's probably where she got a lot of her information. So the preface <clears throat> is to condense into a small work like this, such points as we trust may appeal more particularly to youthful readers, means the sacrifice of numerous other interesting events in the remarkable career of our pioneer. Greater attention, therefore, has been given to incidents in his early life than to his life in later years and to the work of the great mission of which he was the founder. The honored parents of the writer's husband were for 25 years missionaries in China. <clears throat> Excuse me. Most of that time they spent in connection with the China Inland Mission. It was in the spring of 1879 that my father-in-law was one of a party of new workers whom Dr. Hudson Taylor was escorting to China. He still recalls clearly the reading on the Acts of the Apostles, which, which Mr. Taylor gave every morning during the voyage of six weeks. Of our pioneer, he now writes, The reverential side of his character was exhibited in a marked degree as he read and expounded those wonderful records of the work of the early Christian church. With beaming face, he would read the book, after which, with great depth of feeling and spiritual insight, he would explain and illustrate the text to the benefit and blessing of all who were present. Spiritual and reverential as he was, the humorous side of Mr. Taylor's boyhood days was still seen in his mature years, and well for him and his associates that it was. It was not unusual for his party to have to sleep on boards when traveling from place to place, but he always advised them to select a soft board. When asked why he always traveled third class, his reply was, because there is not a fourth. At our home in Shanghai, we had the pleasure of entertaining at dinner one evening, young James Taylor, grandson of the hero of this story. Many other members of the mission are still our personal friends and their lives are worthy examples of self-sacrifice and devotion to their work. To Dr. and Mrs. Howard Taylor's The Growth of a Soul, the author is greatly indebted for the bulk of this biographic sketch. Also much valuable information came by way of the Worldwide Missionary Library, Broomhall's The Man Who Dared, and Mrs. Howard Taylor's The Journey's End. That the reading of the page, pages which follow may help my dear young friends to direct their minds and hearts into channels of sacrifice and service for the Master is my fervent prayer. Gloria Hunnix, Seattle, Washington. Okay, chapter one. James Hudson Taylor, Childhood Days. The young druggist, James Taylor, sat musing one evening in front of the open fireplace. Business had been good that day. Some of his poor neighbors, who could ill afford to pay for necessary articles bought at the drugstore in the recent past, had been cheered by the gracious words that fell from his lips. It is all right. 
we'll send that bill up to heaven and settle it there. His father and grandfather before him had been preachers in connection with John Wesley's Reformation, and now his own influence as a local preacher too was much strengthened by his generosity and by his skill in the management of money matters. But it was not business affairs that held the supremacy in the young man's thought that evening. Arising from his easy chair, he slipped quietly into the kitchen, whose walls re-echoed the beautiful strains of music that were pealing forth unconsciously from the lips of the industrious queen of his home, who formerly was Miss Amelia Hudson. My dear wife, can you spare a few minutes to moments to read over these texts with me? asked the affectionate young husband. Gladly, my dear, what texts are you studying now? inquired his companion with love beaming in her eyes. It was a long, earnest talk that followed concerning the happiness to which they were looking forward. It was those verses in Exodus and Numbers about the setting apart unto the Lord of the firstborn that they discussed. Upon their knees in earnest prayer they consecrated to God the best gift they could expect him to give. And in response God honored their faith by causing them to realize that their offspring was accepted for future service in the promotion of the Lord's work. Thus, with the godly heritage of three generations before him, a baby boy came into the home of James and Amelia Taylor on May 21, 1832, at Barnsley, Yorkshire, England. He was named for both parents, James Hudson Taylor, and it is his life we are briefly to trace in this book. The new baby was bright and sweet as any loving parents could wish, but they soon found the little Hudson to be a frail, delicate child, which made it more difficult to teach him obedience and self-control. Yet both the father and the mother realized what an injustice it would be to their son to allow him to grow up without discipline. Therefore they agreed to stand together and daily seek God for wisdom in the training of their child. His earliest recollections date back to the age of about two and one-half years, when, if he had been specially good during the service in the chapel on Pinfold Hill, immediately after the benediction was pronounced he would be handed back across the seat to his grandfather, who always sat just behind. This transit from pew to pew and the clasp of his grandfather's arms brought a consciousness of good behavior which he never forgot. At the age of four, he attempted writing a book about a wicked old man of 80. I only finished one chapter, laboriously inscribed in large print. It was not very long, said Hudson Taylor many years later. Teaching his little sister Amelia to walk and playing meeting with his brother when one was speaker and the other audience, and later the passing away of two little brothers, along with his own statement. When I am a man, I mean to be a missionary and go to China, ever lingered in his mind as childhood recollections. Being now the only son, he made a companion of his sister Amelia, who was near his own age. <clears throat> and little Louise being several years younger. Naturally, Hudson took life seriously from the first, yet he was sunny and bright and fond of boyish fun. There was that little... There was little that escaped his eye, and his ability to enjoy things was very great. Always could he delight himself in nature, for he possessed sympathy, 
patience and observation that unfolded to him many interesting facts. The cultivation of a little flower or fern brought home from the woods, a study of the habits of birds, animals, and insects, all possessed a charm for him that increased with years. Mr. and Mrs. Taylor taught their children the value of money by having them earn their own pennies. These they earned by doing simple little tasks suited to their ability. One day when Hudson had a whole penny of his very own, earned by considerable effort on his part, a fair came to town. Of all the attractions it offered, the one which Hudson wished most to see when asking permission to go was that of the stuffed birds and animals. Joyfully he climbed the hill, ran along the lane, and sought among the bewildering variety of attractions for the birds and animals of his dreams. It was disappointing to find a fence around the enclosure, and at the gate a tall man who frowned upon little boys. But Hudson showed his penny and asked to go in. To his surprise, a man denied him the privilege, saying the entrance fee was tuppence, meaning two pennies. I haven't got another penny, he explained timidly, but I'll give you this one if you will let me in. And wouldn't it be better for you to have one penny than none at all? The tall man in uniform was not able to see the point. Though Hudson persevered and tried to reason with the man, all his efforts failed in giving him access to view the wonderful treasures behind the closed doors. Poor sensitive little Hudson ran home crying as if his heart would break. As usual, his mother understood all about the trouble. Taking him in her arms and gently smoothing his hair, she explained that the man was only doing his duty and that everyone had to pay two pennies to see those lovely birds and animals. Then she said, you have been so good and industrious lately that mother will give you another penny as a reward. So run off again now and the man will be glad to let you in. This unexpected turn of events put everything right and sent such gladness thrilling through the little heart that 70 long years afterward it had not passed away. The Taylor children were made to realize that clean hands and shoes, nicely kept nails, well-brushed garments, etc., were as necessary at home as in any company. It was thoroughness and self-respect which their parents required in everything. Their father reasoned thus, it was not enough that his children were happy and amused, well cared for and obedient. They must be doing their duty, getting through their daily tasks, acquiring habits that alone would make them dependable men and women in days to come. No one was allowed to be late for meals or any other engagement. If there are five people, he would say, and they are kept waiting one minute, do you not see that five minutes are lost, which never can be found again? It was not much Mr. Taylor could give his children of wealth or worldly advantage, but he could and did imbue with them with a strong, simple faith like his own. He taught them to reverence the Bible as the word of God and to trust every promise to mean at least all it says. Hudson's health was too delicate for him to go to school, but the education he received at home more than made up for this loss. Not only was his course of study systematic and his general intelligence developed, but the conversation of his parents and their visitors awakened thought and purpose to which the average schoolboy is a stranger. His father's daily life, as the lad himself grew old enough to share it, 
in no wise weakened these impressions. Mr. and Mrs. Taylor, being very hospitable, often entertained strangers, especially when other ministers and fellow workers came for the quarter-day meetings on Pinfold Hill. It was on such occasions that the subject of foreign missions came up, and the little folks were delighted with many a story of faraway lands. China always held first place in Mr. Taylor's sympathy, and he was troubled because the church to which he belonged was doing nothing for her evangelism. Evangelization. Though a hundred years had passed since Wesley's great revival, and his followers were celebrating the centenary jubilee, and large offerings filled their treasuries, and worldwide pr wide prayer resulted in a great increase of spiritual blessing, yet among the new lines of work suggested for home and other lands, none were destined for China. Robert Morrison, first Protestant pioneer in that land, had died five years before, and no one had taken his place. Afterwards, the children's interest was increased by China, a little work by Peter Parley, which they read over and over until it was almost memorized. Hudson, who was then only about seven years of age, seemed to have already made up his mind to go to China, and now Amelia was ready to cast her lot with him. Their parents noticed these childish purposes. They had desired that Hudson might be called to just such work, but his continued ill health <clears throat> gradually removed such hope from their hearts. Nevertheless, the Spirit of God seemed to be working in his childish heart. Often he went with his father on Sunday to the country chapels and seemed to enter right into the spirit and burden of the meetings. But Hudson's concern for the welfare of others did not depend upon such religious gatherings. It was kept alive by the conversation of his parents and the influence of home. They not only set up an ideal, but actually made living for God the first and most important matter of their lives. However, his parents were well balanced on matters of religion. They delighted in giving their son and daughters happy recreational times. Often on Saturday afternoons, their father took them for long walks in the country. They loved the birds, butterflies, and flowers, and listened with interest to all he said about them. The monthly visits of the magazine on natural history which came into their home did much to deepen their intelligent interest. From their father's drugstore, pill boxes were taken. Into these they pricked air holes so their collections of insects and butterflies could be brought home comfortably. Then a little chloroform gave their catch an easy death, for the children were taught to avoid cruelty to anything that had life. Other happy occasions came on Christmas Day when all the children and grandchildren gathered at Grandpa's or Grandma's to share the goodies in her pantry, and when the troops of merry boys and girls were allowed to play hide-and-go-seek all over the house. Chapter 2 <clears throat> Life at School and Conversion not until he was 11 years of age did Hudson Taylor begin his brief career as a schoolboy. Even then, his delicacy of health made it impossible for him to attend regularly as his ambition to learn made him likely to study too much. Association with other boys was one thing he needed. Boyish sports did not attract him so much as to make him a favorite by any means. However, he made some lasting friendships and activities on the playground had a valuable effect on his character. After all, school days were not really happy ones for Hudson, 
for he missed the spiritual atmosphere which he had always had before. He allowed the joyous faith of childhood to pass away and for six years was unsettled in Christian experience, though most of the time trying hard to make himself a Christian. But there came to Hudson during his first year at school a fitting word which he never forgot. It was through a speech made by Mr. Henry Reed of Tasmania, in which the speaker told a true story of a convict under sentence of death who had not taken heed when the Spirit of God said to him, My son, give me thine heart, but had walked right on into temptation and finally had committed murder. The details of the story made deep impressions, and Hudson was never able to get away from the pleading of his conscience. My son, give me thine heart though a definite experience in his heart did not come until some years later. In the, in the school came unsatisfactory alterations, and as his father needed help in the drugstore, Hudson's experience in school life ended just before Christmas, 1845. He was glad of a chance to help earn his own living while carrying on his studies at home. The new arrangement worked well. His father's library afforded all the books he required, and in the helpful companionships of home, the troubles of his inner life began to pass away. He became conscious of a surrender of his heart to God, and for a time seemed to get on well, but another testing time awaited him. At the age of 15, he went as a junior clerk into one of the best banks in Barnsley. Here he was well drilled in accounting and in business correspondence, and in the absolute necessity of promptness and accuracy in financial matters. He also found his little corner in the great busy world and learned to take his place as a man among men. But alas, an older clerk who was handsome and popular laughed at Hudson's old-fashioned notions, and because he was not firmly grounded in Christ, Hudson allowed the skeptical views of his companions to carry him away and cause him to neglect secret prayer. Overtime work at bookkeeping by gaslight brought about inflammation of the eyes, and after nine months in the bank, he was obliged to resign his position and return home. Needless to say, his sunny disposition was now clouded, and the happiness of home marred. Father tried to help him. Mother redoubled her tenderness and prayers. But it was his 13-year-old sister Amelia who succeeded in winning his confidence after she decided to go alone three times a day and pray for his salvation. There will be a story at the beginning and sermon or moral at the close. I will take the former and leave the latter for those who like it, mused Hudson one June afternoon in 1849 as his eyes fell on a gospel tract lying near him. <clears throat> okay, so he's, let me just interject here. He sees a gospel tract laying near him, and he says, There will be a story at the beginning and a sermon or a moral at the close. I will take the former and leave the latter for those who like it. Oh, so he was like, not that interested in the gospel tract. Okay, let's continue. He was having a holiday, and as he scarcely knew how to pass the hours, he picked up the tract and read these words, The Finished Work of Christ. The text it is finished, then came to his mind along with the explanation. A full and perfect atonement for sin. The debt was paid for the sins of the whole world. Then thought he, if the whole work was finished and the whole debt paid, 
What is there left for me to do? With this thought came the happy conviction that it was for him to accept this Savior and this salvation. Thus Hudson Taylor spent the most profitable holiday he had ever had. So let's interject a thought here on this. <clears throat> there's, there's churches out there today that are like, the debt was paid once and for all. It is finished. Everything that Hudson said here and read, it is finished. So he's like, well, then what, what's there left for me to do? And um, the churches that are the hyper grace churches <clears throat> um, would say, well, nothing. You're saved. That's it. But no. Hudson knew back in the 1800s, with this came the happy conviction that what he had to do was accept this Savior and this salvation. So he accepted Christ, but upon accepting Christ, it changed his heart. If there's no heart change, then your heart didn't fully accept him. Know what I mean? All right, <clears throat> let's continue. His mother was absent from home and would not return for another fortnight. To Amelia, he first broke the glad news of his conversion. When Mrs. Taylor returned, Hudson was the first to meet her and to say he had good news for her. I know, my boy, I have been rejoicing a fortnight in the glad tidings you have to tell, she answered. Why, has Amelia broken her promise? She said she would tell no one. Ah, my son, continued the mother, no one has told me. But my heart became so burdened for you that a fortnight ago I determined not to arise from prayer until the assurance of your salvation came. So clearly did it come that I have been praising God ever since for the answer, and that my only boy is again restored to the grace and the favor of God. That's pretty cool. All right, so we did two chapters. Um, <clears throat> we're at 26 minutes, so we won't do another. I, I don't believe the chapters are very long. No, they're not very long. So we'll we'll be getting through this book pretty quickly if not by the end of the week early next week um but it's interesting once he gets to china the things he has to go through there are so many good books out there on uh missionaries and testimonies of people who have done things like that um there is one that I read, what is the name of that book? I can't think of it. It's it's of another guy, he, he's Chinese and he was a missionary. Um, I wish I could think of it. A friend of mine has it, I, I'm gonna get it back from her. I can't read it because it's still under, under copyright, um, but I can give you the title and the author. Another book, is the biography of Reese Howells, R-E-E-S-H-O-W-E-L-L-S. <clears throat> that book I have. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Um, and just mirac miraculous things that happened in these guys', gals' lives along the way. Just, just miraculous stuff. Um, but... 
and I suppose I can always ask for permission, you know, to do a, I suppose they would figure this an uh, audio book, you know, so there's a lot involved in, in getting permission for that. My aim is to read testimonies from biblical times or from, you know, the life of Christ up until where, you know, there's, it's public domain. And granted, it could very well be, you know, stories you have heard before or may not have heard before. But these are testimonies of people who lived for God and for evangelism and just doing the will of God. And what's interesting about it to me is that now we are closer to the very end of time when people are going to be looking for examples like that and being a lover of books from the 1800s and early 1900s anyway that's always been my my era of favorite books that it's harder and harder to find people who didn't feel compelled for any other reason just that the holy spirit gripped their heart <clears throat> god gripped their heart and said this is what you're going to do, and it's going to be awesome. And those are the stories I love. Um, like I said, I lost a bunch in a fire, and others I gave away. So I'm just going to have to keep looking for those stories so that I have some to share. So anyway, that concludes the reading today of James Hudson Taylor. And we'll pick it up again with chapter three tomorrow. And I pray you have a blessed day. Welcome to Kingdom Testimonies. It is Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. We are continuing with James Hudson Taylor, pioneer missionary of inland China. We did chapter 10 yesterday, which was a long chapter, um, and so today we are starting with chapter 11, and he is in the thick of things in China. He wanted to go into inland China because a lot of missionaries had touched on the coastal areas and there basically just <clears throat> really wasn't a lot of opposition to the gospel in those areas because the coastal areas, as you know, I got to get my water. Um, you know, just, just look at New York, L.A., um, Seattle, Florida. You know, there's there's so much diversity there that it's... You know, it's, it's as if, um, a Buddhist or somebody, I'm just picking one, <clears throat> is going to head into Kansas and they're a race that like no one has ever really seen before. I know this is a stretch of the imagination, but, um, or they head into the Bible Belt and they decide they're going to start pushing. You know, it's, they just, he just wasn't welcome. 
He was not welcome. They didn't want him there at all. It was dangerous. This is the 1850s. You know, that was a really long time ago. What did we figure, like 170 years? Am I figuring that right? 1850, 1950, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> let's continue. Chapter 11, Into Chinese Costume. There is not room in this little volume to tell you about the sixth evangelistic journey the hero of our story took. We shall pass over it by saying that he went alone, except for Chinese help, up the Yangtze River as far as Nanking and was gone 25 days. He preached in 58 villages, towns, and cities, 51 of which had never before been touched by a Protestant missionary. So out of 58, <clears throat> 51 had never seen a Protestant missionary. Many interesting things occurred on that trip, but let us think now about journey number seven, taken in June with Mr. Burden and Dr. Parker to Ningpo, an important city south of Shanghai on the coast. As they did all the missionary work they could on the way, it was a great contrast for them to be welcomed into the home of Mr. and Mrs. Cobbold, where the next few days were spent. Here they were introduced to other foreigners, 11 in all, representing different missions. They also visited the fine school conducted by Miss Eldersey, an English lady having independent funds. She was assisted by two young ladies whose father, Reverend Samuel Dyer, had been among the earliest missionaries to China, but had now gone to his reward. The young ladies were well-educated and able to speak the Chinese language fluently. One thing was lacking in the Ningpo foreign community, and that was a hospital. The people there felt keenly the need of this, but there was no doctor among their number to open and take charge of a hospital. The three Shanghai men had expected to do more evangelistic work on the return journey, but Mr. Burden got word that his infant daughter was seriously ill and Hudson Taylor himself was in such poor health that he dared not undertake further traveling in the hot weather. It was a most trying two months <clears throat> that followed in Shanghai. The weather was terribly hot. Two married couples, each having three small children and a single young man, all living under one small roof, trying to study the Chinese language, required much more than ordinary grace and perseverance. Added to this was the suspense still hanging over Dr. Par Dr. Parker and Mr. Taylor with regard to what their committee at home would do for them. They seemed disinclined to put money into bricks and mortar, even though their men on the field had no prospect of being otherwise housed. Little by little, they saw fading away from them the carefully made plans outlined at the beginning of the year. Those plans did not appeal to the society at home at all. But in the meantime, he, who notes the sparrow's fall, did not forget the needs of his own trusting children in faraway China, and in unthought of ways he cared for them. It was good that Hudson Taylor had learned several years before while in England to move man through God by prayer alone. Up to this time, he had been writing to his parents and sister. Our plans are laid before the society. If they do nothing, we mean to try to carry them out ourselves. 
If they oppose, it may become a question as to which we shall dispense with, the society or our plans of usefulness. <clears throat> I'm just going to interject here. They haven't given them one red cent. Why are they even still concerned with the society? I guess. I don't know. All right. How little did he realize that even before those January letters could reach the society, his own outlook would be so completely changed as a result of his own evangelistic journeys. Now he was writing to parents and sister. Chinese dress, a little place in the interior, and above all, a future left in the hands of God. Providence had had time to work, and the change came, not from outward circumstances only, but from the development of his life within. It was on August 6th that Dr. Parker and Mr. Taylor received notice that the house they occupied must be vacated by the end of September, as the new missionaries of the LMS would arrive then and must have the house. The other families sharing it with them were building their own house, and it would soon be ready to move into. Therefore, this notice meant but little to them. Just at this time, further letters from the Society showed very clearly that it would not furnish money for its agents in Shanghai to use in buying land there and putting up the buildings they said were necessary. Though they did give permission to Dr. Parker to rent rooms for a dispensary. How or where they were to live, the Society had no suggestions to make. With this came another letter also. It was from Ning Po. All right, I have to retract what I said. Apparently they were given them room for their work, but not for where they were living. Let's continue. Several weeks before that, the missionaries there had invited Dr. Parker to settle among them. This is in Ningpo. He had replied that he could not feel clear to do so unless it would, be op it would open a door of greater usefulness. A home and practice of his own would be very attractive, but he could not sacrifice missionary work. If in connection with this he could support a hospital for Chinese, the least cost of which would be $800 a year, the matter would be considered. So now with this notice to vacate the house, and a final word from the society that the plans for usefulness could not be accepted, came also the letter from Ningpo friends that they would be responsible for the support of a Chinese hospital if Dr. Parker would come to them. So it seemed providential leadings for the doctor to answer the Ningpo call at once. Poor Hudson Taylor was all the more cast upon God. He had no home, nor even the companionship of a fellow worker. Feeling that there was still a work for him to do in Shanghai, he set about once more to find a house. Day after day, the search was continued, but nothing could be found at a price within his means. Three weeks this continued. It is wearisome work, he wrote to his sister, and if I do not soon succeed, I shall adopt Chinese dress and seek a place in the country. Chinese dress worn by an Englishman was almost unheard of in those days, except as an inland journey was taken. Even then, as soon as the traveler returned to Shanghai, the native costume was at once changed for English dress again. But Mr. Taylor longed to identify himself with the people by outward appearance and to be less noticeable as he moved among them. It was now time for Dr. Parker to move to Ningpo, and Hudson Taylor had promised to accompany him across the Hangchow Bay, which was the most difficult part of the journey. 
Thursday night came and the family was to leave Friday morning. Taylor's house hunting had continued every day, but nothing had been found. So the doctor promised to store Taylor's few belongings at his own house in Ningpo, and then the young man could live on boats, giving himself to evangelistic work until his way opened somewhere in the interior. That afternoon, young Taylor went out to hire a junk to take the Parkers and their possessions across to Ningpo. His Chinese clothes were ordered and he and would be ready for him the next morning. On his way, he was met by a man who said, Are you looking for a house in the native city? Would a small one with only five rooms do? Near the south gate there is one, only it is not quite finished. The owner has run short of money and does not know how to complete the work. If it suits the foreign teacher, no deposit will be asked. It can be had at once for an advance of six months' rent. As if in a pleasant dream, Hudson Taylor followed his guide and found a new clean house with two rooms upstairs and two down and one across the courtyard for the servants, just exactly the kind he needed and in the neighborhood that suited him best, all for only 10 pounds to cover six months' rent. Imagine his unspeakable joy. To pay over the money that night and receive the key to the premises was to the long and sorely tried missionary a delight more easily imagined than described. Prayer had been answered. God had worked. <clears throat> Isn't it interesting? God always works, like at the last minute. You know, he, he's, he's trying to stretch us and make us more faithful. And the only way he can do that is by stretching us. So that's pretty cool. All right. So that night, James Hudson Taylor took a step he had been prayerfully considering for a long time. He called in a barber and had his head shaved, leaving only enough of the fair curly hair to grow into the queue of the Chinaman. He prepared a dye to darken the remainder of this hair so it would match the long black braid which would serve as a substitute until his own grew out. To put on Chinese dress in those days without the queue would appear ridiculous to native and foreigner alike. Next morning, he put on his Chinese baggy trousers. They were two feet too wide for him around the waist, which extra width was laid in a fold in the front and kept in place by a strong girdle. The white calico socks and satin shoes and the loose flowing gown of heavy silk with wide sleeves reaching 12 inches below the fingertips gave him quite the appearance of a scholarly man. End of chapter. Eleven. Strange that he would dress like a Chinaman. He clearly wouldn't have the features of a Chinese person. I guess I... Maybe that's what foreigners did to fit in. Okay. Chapter 12. Companionship with Mr. Burns. Many of the things that occurred in the life of our young missionary during the following six months must be passed over without much notice. Mention must be made, though, that he had the great joy of performing his first baptism in China, one of his own household servants who had been converted for some time. He also made another visit to Sing Ming Island and found that his Chinese garments won for him a place in the people's hearts that would scarcely allow him to leave. They found a house for him and came in multitudes for medical treatment and to hear his preaching. 
Finally, having to return to Shanghai for money and to mail letters, he left the work of preaching in charge of some of his native helpers, expecting to return shortly. While waiting for his winter garments, which were cotton padded or lined with sheepskin, a messenger came across to say that the druggists and chemists were very angry because they were being robbed of their trade and that he and his helpers were to be arrested. About this time, a letter was received from the British consul informing him that unless he lived in one of the five treaty ports, he could not expect protection from the English law in case of trouble. It was a heartbreaking situation for Hudson Taylor, who had been so overjoyed at his new location among the Chinese away from all foreign element. But God had other and better plans to be unfolded as time went on. Providentially, he was brought in touch with Mr. William Burns, a man without a family, who had led a successful missionary life many years in southern China. He also was dressed in the native costume and traveled in his own boat from place to place, much as Hudson Taylor was doing. Hence, they felt that they had a great deal in common and naturally were drawn together. As Mr. Burns was an older man, his long years of Christian experience provided him with fatherly counsel and advice which the younger man felt the need of. One night, a prayer meeting was held at the home of Dr. Medhurst, a Christian captain whose vessel had just arrived from Swatow, South China, led the meeting. His accounts of the great need of missionary work in that southern city resulted in his giving free passage on the ship to both Mr. Burns and Mr. Taylor, whom the Lord was leading to answer the call of that needy place. This was March 6th, just two years after Mr. Taylor's arrival in China. <clears throat> this guy's leaving houses and dwellings and belongings like everywhere. All right. He now spoke with ease two Chinese dialects. A great variety of experiences in that short time had changed the Barnsley lad into a useful missionary. He had seen war with all its horrors, had endured much discomfort from lack of supplies, had learned what it means to be indebted to others even for a home, had experienced loneliness, sickness, change, and uncertainty. All this had been his training in God's school, and it brought to his heart patience and quietness and a deeper dependence upon God. Friends in the homeland whom the Lord raised up sent funds so liberally that for a great many months he had no need for his letter of credit from the society. Eleven evangelistic journeys in different directions now lay be behind him, but his greatest joy was to know that a few Chinese had been turned from heathen idolatry and brought to a saving knowledge of the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But one thing remained just the same as when he landed in China two years previously. He still had no home, no permanent work, no settled plans ahead. Where or how his work was to take form and grow into some kind of structure, he knew not. But he felt that God was guiding in each step that he had taken. So he learned not to worry about his future, but just to follow one step at a time where his master would lead. The city of Swatow was situated between two principal channels of the Han River and had little room for growth. Its houses all seemed full to overflowing with inhabitants, and the outlook for securing even a room in this crowded city was worse than it had been in Shanghai but the captain on whose boat they had found passage would show them hospitality as long as he would be in harbor. 
At just about the last moment, a Chinese merchant heard Mr. Burns speaking his own language, the Cantonese dialect, so fluently that he became interested, interested, especially as he noticed the two foreigners were in Chinese dress. He introduced them to one of the highest officials of the town who succeeded in securing a room for them. There was just one room over an incense shop into which they had to climb through a hole in the floor. This they curt curtained off into three rooms, a bedroom for each, and a center apartment for a study. Their beds were made of a few boards. A box lid supported by two bags of books served as a table. Two bamboo stools and a bamboo easy chair completed their furniture. This humble beginning among the lowest and poorest of the people is where gospel seeds were sown that have long since yielded an abundant harvest. Frequently visits were made to country places, though amid many dangers, for the whole district seemed very much upset. Without emperor, without rulers, without law was a common expression among the people. In May, they were happy at the thought of having obtained a little cottage in a small country town, and Hudson Taylor was on his way there. Go back, go back at once. My neighbors will not allow me to let you have the house, came the unexpected greeting from the landlord as the missionary approached. But after a moment's prayer, he dismissed his boat and went on about the master's business. What will you do? Where shall we go when darkness comes on? We cannot stay out all night, argued the servant. Never fear came the quiet answer. The Lord knows and he will provide. So in temples, tea shops, and busy streets, tracts and gospels were handed to those who could read. Where are you going to sleep, was asked by and by. That I cannot tell you, he frankly replied, but my heavenly father knows. Are you not anxious, lest you should get into trouble? No, I am not anxious, came the answer with a smile. My heart is in perfect peace because the Lord will provide. So it continued until night, and then a barber invited him to sleep in his shop. The weather was extremely hot, and while sitting in his study, Mr. Taylor had a towel beside him to wipe off the perspir perspiration that streamed from his face and arms. Mr. Burns had spent many a summer in that southern climate and did not now feel the heat so much. As the hottest season was yet to come, it seemed very evident that Mr. Taylor would have to go back to Shanghai for his health's sake. Before he did so, however, they tried hard to rent a room for preaching, but the Chinese were suspicious. How could anyone be willing to pay the rent of a shop merely to have a place for talking in about religious doctrines, they asked among themselves. Clearly, there must be something behind such a proceeding. But premises for medical work would be quite another matter. The foreign doctor was always doing his work free, and if he must tell more or less about his religion... Well, his medicines were so good that the preaching could be tolerated. Thus, Mr. Burns and Mr. Taylor were led to consider opening a little dispensary. As the latter had to go to Shanghai anyway until the hot weather was over, he could bring all his instruments and medicines and be ready for work in the fall. Just as these plans were in their minds, the Mandarin of the place was taken so ill that the native doctors could do nothing for him. But he called the foreign doctor and was soon relieved and well. Then he strongly advised these foreigners to commence medical work in Swatow, and he himself began to look out premises for them. Presently, they were able to rent the entire house in which they had been occupying just the one room. This gave them, them the advantage of working in a, in a neighborhood where they were already known and respected. Early in June, these two congenial workers parted, having worked together very happily for six months. 
but they both look forward to meeting again soon and to getting really settled in a medical work in medical work in Swatow as a stepping stone to the most important phase of missionary work, the preaching of the gospel. Chapter 13, Disappointment, Loss, Midnight Wandering. A few days' journey up the coast and familiar scenes about Shanghai lay before Mr. Taylor. He wended his way to the LMS compound where his medicine chest was stored. Imagine his great shock upon learning that just a day or two before a fire had occurred and his medicine chest had been burned. Thoughts like these ran through his mind. Why did the Lord allow that to happen? Just now my instruments are so much needed. Our success in Swatow seems to depend wholly upon the medical work that we are ready to undertake. Mr. Burns is there waiting for me. But here his trend of thought was halted. Had not God some wise purpose in overruling their plans? To purchase a new outfit in Shanghai was far beyond his means, and to send home for them meant six or eight months before they could arrive. All he saw to do was to write and tell Mr. Burns what had happened, then go across to Ningpo to ask Dr. Park if Dr. Parker could lend them a few supplies to use while waiting for the shipment from home. I could get to Ningpo in three or four days, thought Hudson Taylor, but I may as well make it an evangelistic journey and distribute Gospels on the way. After a fortnight on the way, he had given out 200 New Testaments and 3,000 other books and tracts, and had improved wonderful opportunities for preaching the Gospel. Now that he was nearing the end of his journey, and as there was no water beyond Shi Mun Wan, he paid off his boat and then hired coolies to carry his things as far as Cheng Yen. Leaving his servant in charge of the coolies, who stopped often to rest, Mr. Taylor walked on until he reached Shimen and waited in a tea shop outside the north gate. By and by the coolies came, and after they had stopped for rice, tea, and a rest, Mr. Taylor urged them to go on to Cheng Yen before the sun got too hot. His servant had a friend in the city and wanted to wait until the following day, but the missionary wanted to reach Haining that night, if possible, from whence they could take a boat to Ningpo. So they all passed through the north gate. When a third of the way through the city, the coolie stopped to rest, saying they could not carry his things to Cheng Yen. They agreed to take them to the south gate. Here other coolies were being called by the servant, and Mr. Taylor walked on, as before, to Chang'an, only four miles. While waiting for them, he engaged other coolies to carry the burden to Haining that night. He waited and waited and waited and wondered why they did not come. He thought the servant might have gone to see his friend and would come on that evening. Had not his feet been sore and blistered, he would have gone back to look for them. At last, Mr. Taylor began to make inquiry. He finally learned that a bamboo box and a bed such as his were such as were his had just been carried by a coolie who said he was in a hurry to reach Hining that night, so the traveler concluded that his goods had gone on before him. It was already dark, and as he was too tired to go further, he looked about for an inn where he could lodge for the night and get food. Upon asking for supper he was told that cold rice and snakes, fried in lamp oil, were all that could be had. Now wishing people to recognize that he was a foreigner, he ordered some, but made very little success at satisfying his hunger. That's gross. Okay. 
when he asked for a bed the landlord told him the authorities required a record of lodgers so he was asked a long list of questions by this the man's wife learned that mr taylor was a doctor so she remarked i am glad of that for i have a daughter afflicted with leprosy and if you will cure her you shall have your supper and bed for nothing then he was curious enough to ask what his supper and bed would cost if paid for and to his great amusement found they were worth less than three and one-half pence that night his bed consisted of a board raised on two stools with only his umbrella and shoes for a pillow as ten or eleven other fellows were sleeping in the same room he could take nothing off lest it should be stolen early tuesday morning mr taylor arose but had to wait a long time for breakfast he was also delayed in getting change for a dollar which was chipped a little in one or two places and he lost on the exchange over three hundred cash which meant much while on that journey afterwards he set out in search of his servant and goods no news at all could he get of them so he went on to high ning the distance was eight miles and it was afternoon when he reached the northern suburb there he began to make inquiry for the lost belongings he was told that outside the east gate he might find them for it was near there that the sea junks called in vain the search was made while he was sitting to rest a few minutes, several persons from the Mandarin's office came to ask about his business. By and by, one of the men in the tea shop said, A bamboo box and a bed, such as you describe, were carried past here half an hour ago. You had better go to the south gate and inquire there. Mr. Taylor engaged a man to make a thorough search everywhere, offering to reward him well if he were successful. But when the man returned, he had no news of the lost box. It was then late, and the weary, foot-sore, foot-sore traveler, asked this man to help him find lodging for the night. At the first two places, the people were willing to receive him, but when they noticed the man following of whom they evidently were afraid, they refused to give Mr. Taylor a bed. The third place promised lodging, so tea was brought in and the man paid off. But immediately after the man left, officials came in, and soon Mr. Taylor was told he could not be entertained there that night. A young man felt sorry and said, Never mind, come with me, and if you cannot get better lodging, you shall sleep at our house. But his people were unwilling. More and more weary, he was becoming. At last, someone promised a bed, but it would be necessary for him to wait in a tea shop until the crowd retired that had gathered about the door. So on they waited until past midnight. Then the young man escorting him could not find the place, but led him to quite another part of the city at there and there at about two o'clock in the morning left him to spend the night as best he could wow that sucks okay so that was chapter 13 we'll start chapter 14 tomorrow um yeah not much to go 14 15, 16, 17, very short chapters, 18, 19, and 20. Oh, yeah, I did say there's 20 chapters. Yeah, very short chapters left. Um, possibly we'll finish this book on Friday. Possibly. Um, tomorrow is no podcast um so i can work on the blog and i didn't even get to a blog last week oh last week was just 
so packed. But uh, anyway, interesting what this guy is having to go through. All right, well, we are almost done with our story of the uh, first very notable, successful missionary to inland China from the 1850s, James Hudson Taylor. That might be somebody we'll run into in heaven. Wouldn't it be neat? We'd be like, hey, we read your story. So anyway, I will let you go. And I pray you have a blessed day. Welcome to Kingdom Testimonies. It is Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. We are continuing with James Hudson Taylor, Pioneer Missionary of Inland China. We did Chapter 10 yesterday, which was a long chapter. Um, and so today... We are starting with chapter 11. And he is in the thick of things in China. He wanted to go into inland China because a lot of missionaries had touched on the coastal areas. And there basically just <clears throat> really wasn't a lot of opposition to... The gospel in those areas because the coastal areas as you know I gotta get my water um you know just just look at New York LA um Seattle Florida you know there's there's so much diversity there that it's you know it's it's as if um a Buddhist or somebody, I'm just picking one, <clears throat> is going to head into Kansas and they're a race that like no one has ever really seen before. I know this is a stretch of the imagination, but, um, or they head into the Bible belt and they decide they're going to start pushing, you know, it's, they just, he just wasn't welcome. He was not welcome. They didn't want him there at all. It was dangerous. This is the 1850s. You know, that was a really long time ago. What did we figure, like 170 years? Am I figuring that right? 1850, 1950, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> let's continue. Chapter 11, Into Chinese Costume. There is not room in this little volume to tell you about the sixth evangelistic journey the hero of our story took. We shall pass over it by saying that he went alone, except for Chinese help, up the Yangtze River as far as Nanking and was gone 25 days. He preached in 58 villages, towns, and cities, 51 of which had never before been touched by a Protestant missionary. So out of 58, <clears throat> 51 had never seen a Protestant missionary. Many interesting things occurred on that trip, but let us think now about journey number seven, taken in June with Mr. Burden and Dr. Parker to Ningpo, 
an important city south of Shanghai on the coast. As they did all the missionary work they could on the way, it was a great contrast for them to be welcomed into the home of Mr. and Mrs. Cobbold, where the next few days were spent. Here they were introduced to other foreigners, 11 in all, representing different missions. They also visited the fine school conducted by Miss Eldersee, an English lady having independent funds. She was assisted by two young ladies whose father, Reverend Samuel Dyer, had been among the earliest missionaries to China, but had now gone to his reward. The young ladies were well educated and able to speak the Chinese language fluently. One thing was lacking in the Ningpo foreign community, and that was a hospital. The people there felt keenly the need of this, but there was no doctor among their number to open and take charge of a hospital. The three Shanghai men had expected to do more evangelistic work on the return journey, but Mr. Burden got word that his infant daughter was seriously ill, and Hudson Taylor himself was in such poor health that he dared not undertake further traveling in the hot weather. It was a most trying two months <clears throat> that followed in Shanghai. The weather was terribly hot. Two married couples, each having three small children and a single young man, all living under one small roof, trying to study the Chinese language, required much more than ordinary grace and perseverance. Added to this was the suspense still hanging over Dr. Park Dr. Parker and Mr. Taylor with regard to what their committee at home would do for them. They seemed disinclined to put money into bricks and mortar even though their men on the field had no prospect of being otherwise housed. Little by little they saw fading away from them the carefully made plans outlined at the beginning of the year. Those plans did not appeal to the society at home at all. But in the meantime, he, who notes the sparrow's fall, did not forget the needs of his own trusting children in faraway China, and in unthought of ways he cared for them. It was good that Hudson Taylor had learned several years before while in England to move man through God by prayer alone. Up to this time, he had been writing to his parents and sister, Our plans are laid before the society. If they do nothing, we mean to try to carry them out ourselves. If they oppose, it may become a question as to which we shall dispense with, the society or our plans of usefulness. <clears throat> I'm just going to interject here. They haven't given them one red cent. Why are they even still concerned with the society? I guess. I don't know. All right. How little did he realize that even before those January letters could reach the society, his own outlook would be so completely changed as a result of his own evangelistic journeys. Now he was writing to parents and sister. Chinese dress, a little place in the interior, and above all, a future left in the hands of God. Providence had had time to work, and the change came, not from outward circumstances only, but from the development of his life within. It was on August 6th that Dr. Parker and Mr. Taylor received notice that the house they occupied must be vacated by the end of September, as the new missionaries of the LMS would arrive then and must have the house. The other families sharing it with them were building their own house, and it would soon be ready to move into. Therefore, this notice meant but little to them. 
Just at this time, further letters from the Society show very clearly that it would not furnish money for its agents in Shanghai to use in buying land there and putting up the buildings they said were necessary. Though they did give permission to Dr. Parker to rent rooms for a dispensary. How or where they were to live, the Society had no suggestions to make. With this came another letter also. It was from Ning Po. All right, I have to retract what I said. Apparently, they were giving them room for their work, but not for where they were living. Let's continue. Several weeks before that, the missionaries there had invited Dr. Parker to settle among them. This is in Ningpo. He had replied that he could not feel clear to do so unless it would, be op it would open a door of greater usefulness. A home and practice of his own would be very attractive, but he could not sacrifice missionary work. If in connection with this he could support a hospital for Chinese, the least cost of which would be $800 a year, the matter would be considered. So now with this notice to vacate the house, and a final word from the society that the plans for usefulness could not be accepted, came also a letter from Ningpo friends that they would be responsible for the support of a Chinese hospital if Dr. Parker would come to them. So it seemed providential leadings for the doctor to answer the Ningpo call at once. Poor Hudson Taylor was all the more cast upon God. He had no home, nor even the companionship of a fellow worker. Feeling that there was still a work for him to do in Shanghai, he set about once more to find a house. Day after day, the search was continued, but nothing could be found at a price within his means. Three weeks this continued. It is wearisome work, he wrote to his sister, and if I do not soon succeed, I shall adopt Chinese dress and seek a place in the country. Chinese dress worn by an Englishman was almost unheard of in those days, except as an inland journey was taken. Even then, as soon as the traveler returned to Shanghai, the native costume was at once changed for English dress again. But Mr. Taylor longed to identify himself with the people by outward appearance and to be less noticeable as he moved among them. It was now time for Dr. Parker to move to Ningpo and Hudson Taylor had promised to accompany him across the Hangchow Bay, which was the most difficult part of the journey. Thursday night came and the family was to leave Friday morning. Taylor's house hunting had continued every day, but nothing had been found. So the doctor promised to store Taylor's few belongings at his own house in Ningpo, and then the young man could live on boats, giving himself to evangelistic work until his way opened somewhere in the interior. That afternoon, young Taylor went out to hire a junk to take the Parkers and their possessions across to Ningpo. His Chinese clothes were ordered and he and would be ready for him the next morning. On his way, he was met by a man who said, are you looking for a house in the native city? Would a small one with only five rooms do? Near the south gate there is one, only it is not quite finished. The owner has run short of money and does not know how to complete the work. If it suits the foreign teacher, no deposit will be asked. It can be had at once for an advance of six months' rent. As if in a pleasant dream, Hudson Taylor followed his guide and found a new clean house with two rooms upstairs and two down, and one across the courtyard for the servants, just exactly the kind he needed and in the neighborhood that suited him best, 
all for only 10 pounds to cover six months' rent. Imagine his unspeakable joy. To pay over the money that night and receive the key to the premises was to the long and sorely tried missionary a delight more easily imagined than described. Prayer had been answered. God had worked. <clears throat> Isn't it interesting? God always works, like at the last minute. You know, he, he's, he's trying to stretch us and make us more faithful. And the only way he can do that is by stretching us. So that's pretty cool. All right. So that night, James Hudson Taylor took a step he had been prayerfully considering for a long time. He called in a barber and had his head shaved, leaving only enough of the fair curly hair to grow into the queue of the Chinaman. He prepared a dye to darken the remainder of this hair so it would match the long black braid which would serve as a substitute until his own grew out. To put on Chinese dress in those days without the queue would appear ridiculous to native and foreigner alike. Next morning he put on his Chinese baggy trousers. They were two feet too wide for him around the waist, which extra width was laid in a fold in the front and kept in place by a strong girdle. The white calico socks and satin shoes and the loose flowing gown of heavy silk with wide sleeves reaching 12 inches below the fingertips gave him quite the appearance of a scholarly man. End of chapter 11. Strange that he would dress like a Chinaman. He clearly wouldn't have the features of a Chinese person. I guess I Maybe that's what foreigners did to fit in. Okay, chapter 12, Companionship with Mr. Burns. Many of the things that occurred in the life of our young missionary during the following six months must be passed over without much notice. Mention must be made, though, that he had the great joy of performing his first baptism in China, one of his own household servants who had been converted for some time. He also made another visit to Sing Ming Island and found that his Chinese garments won for him a place in the people's hearts that would scarcely allow him to leave. They found a house for him and came in multitudes for medical treatment and to hear his preaching. Finally, having to return to Shanghai for money and to mail letters, he left the work of preaching in charge of some of his native helpers, expecting to return shortly. While waiting for his winter garments, which were cotton padded or lined with sheepskin, a messenger came across to say that the druggists and chemists were very angry because they were being robbed of their trade and that he and his helpers were to be arrested. About this time, a letter was received from the British consul informing him that unless he lived in one of the five treaty ports, he could not expect protection from the English law in case of trouble. It was a heartbreaking situation for Hudson Taylor, who had been so overjoyed at his new location among the Chinese away from all foreign element. But God had other and better plans to be unfolded as time went on. Providentially, he was brought in touch with Mr. William Burns, a man without a family, who had led a successful missionary life many years in southern China. He also was dressed in the native costume and traveled in his own boat from place to place, much as Hudson Taylor was doing. Hence they felt that they had a great deal in common and naturally were drawn together. 
As Mr. Burns was an older man, his long years of Christian experience provided him with fatherly counsel and advice which the younger man felt the need of. One night, a prayer meeting was held at the home of Dr. Medhurst, a Christian captain whose vessel had just arrived from Swatow, South China, led the meeting. His accounts of the great need of missionary work in that southern city resulted in his giving free passage on the ship to both Mr. Burns and Mr. Taylor, whom the Lord was leading to answer the call of that needy place. This was March 6th, just two years after Mr. Taylor's arrival in China. <clears throat> this guy's leaving houses and dwellings and belongings like everywhere. All right. He now spoke with ease two Chinese dialects. A great variety of experiences in that short time had changed the Barnsley lad into a useful missionary. He had seen war with all its horrors, had endured much discomfort from lack of supplies, had learned what it means to be indebted to others even for a home, had experienced loneliness, sickness, change, and uncertainty. All this had been his training in God's school, and it brought to his heart patience and quietness and a deeper dependence upon God. Friends in the homeland whom the Lord raised up sent funds so liberally that for a great many months he had no need for his letter of credit from the society. Eleven evangelistic journeys in different directions now lay be behind him. But his greatest joy was to know that a few Chinese had been turned from heathen idolatry and brought to a saving knowledge of the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But one thing remained just the same as when he landed in China two years previously. He still had no home, no permanent work, no settled plans ahead. Where or how his work was to take form and grow into some kind of structure, he knew not. But he felt that God was guiding in each step that he had taken. So he learned not to worry about his future, but just to follow one step at a time where his master would lead. The city of Swatow was situated between two principal channels of the Han River and had little room for growth. Its houses all seemed full to overflowing with inhabitants, and the outlook for securing even a room in this crowded city was worse than it had been in Shanghai. But the captain on whose boat they had found passage would show them hospitality as long as he would be in harbor. At just about the last moment, a Chinese merchant heard Mr. Burns speaking his own language, the Cantonese dialect, so fluently that he became interested, interested, especially as he noticed the two foreigners were in Chinese dress. He introduced them to one of the highest officials of the town who succeeded in securing a room for them. There was just one room over an incense shop into which they had to climb through a hole in the floor. This they curt curtained off into three rooms, a bedroom for each, and a center apartment for a study. Their beds were made of a few boards. A box lid supported by two bags of books served as a table. Two bamboo stools and a bamboo easy chair completed their furniture. This humble beginning among the lowest and poorest of the people is where gospel seeds were sown that have long since yielded an abundant harvest. Frequently visits were made to country places, though amid many dangers, for the whole district seemed very much upset. Without emperor, without rulers, without law was a common expression among the people. In May they were happy at the thought of having obtained a little cottage in a small country town, and Hudson Taylor was on his way there. 
Go back, go back at once. My neighbors will not allow me to let you have the house, came the unexpected greeting from the landlord as the missionary approached. But after a moment's prayer, he dismissed his boat and went on about the master's business. What will you do? Where shall we go when darkness comes on? We cannot stay out all night, argued the servant. Never fear, came the quiet answer. The Lord knows and he will provide. So in temples, tea shops, and busy streets, tracts and gospels were handed to those who could read. Where are you going to sleep, was asked by and by. That I cannot tell you, he frankly replied, but my heavenly father knows. Are you not anxious lest you should get into trouble? No, I am not anxious, came the answer with a smile. My heart is in perfect peace because the Lord will provide. So it continued until night, and then a barber invited him to sleep in his shop. The weather was extremely hot, and while sitting in his study, Mr. Taylor had a towel beside him to wipe off the persper perspiration that streamed from his face and arms. Mr. Burns had spent many a summer in that southern climate and did not now feel the heat so much. As the hottest season was yet to come, it seemed very evident that Mr. Taylor would have to go back to Shanghai for his health's sake. Before he did so, however, they tried hard to rent a room for preaching, but the Chinese were suspicious. How could anyone be willing to pay the rent of a shop merely to have a place for talking in about religious doctrines, they asked among themselves. Clearly, there must be something behind such a proceeding. But premises for medical work would be quite another matter. The foreign doctor was always doing his work free, and if he must tell more or less about his religion, well, his medicines were so good that the preaching could be tolerated. Thus, Mr. Burns and Mr. Taylor were led to consider opening a little dispensary. As the latter had to go to Shanghai anyway until the hot weather was over, he could bring all his instruments and medicines and be ready for work in the fall. Just as these plans were in their minds, the Mandarin of the place was taken so ill that the native doctors could do nothing for him. But he called the foreign doctor and was soon relieved and well. Then he strongly advised these foreigners to commence medical work in Swatow, and he himself began to look out premises for them. Presently they were able to rent the entire house in which they had been occupying just the one room. This gave them, them the advantage of working in a, in a neighborhood where they were already known and respected. Early in June, these two congenial workers parted, having worked together very happily for six months. But they both look forward to meeting again soon and to getting really settled in a medical work in medical work in Swatow as a stepping stone to the most important phase of missionary work, the preaching of the gospel. Chapter 13, Disappointment, Loss, Midnight Wandering. A few days' journey up the coast and familiar scenes about Shanghai lay before Mr. Taylor. He wended his way to the LMS compound where his medicine chest was stored. Imagine his great shock upon learning that just a day or two before a fire had occurred and his medicine chest had been burned. Thoughts like these ran through his mind. Why did the Lord allow that to happen? Just now my instruments are so much needed. Our success in Swatow seems to depend wholly upon the medical work that we are ready to undertake. Mr. Burns is there waiting for me. But here his trend of thought was halted. Had not God some wise purpose in overruling their plans? To purchase a new outfit in Shanghai was far beyond his means, and to send home for them meant six or eight months before they could arrive. All he saw to do was to write and tell Mr. Burns what had happened. 
then go across to Ningpo to ask Dr. Park if Dr. Parker could lend them a few supplies to use while waiting for the shipment from home. I could get to Ningpo in three or four days, thought Hudson Taylor, but I may as well make it an evangelistic journey and distribute gospels on the way. After a fortnight on the way, he had given out 200 New Testaments and 3,000 other books and tracts and had improved wonderful opportunities for preaching the gospel. Now that he was nearing the end of his journey, and as there was no water beyond Shimunwan, he paid off his boat and then hired coolies to carry his things as far as Chang'an. Leaving his servant in charge of the coolies, who stopped often to rest, Mr. Taylor walked on until he reached Shimun, then waited in a tea shop outside the north gate. By and by the coolies came, and after they had stopped for rice, tea, and a rest, Mr. Taylor urged them to go on to Chang'an before the sun got too hot. His servant had a friend in the city and wanted to wait until the following day, but the missionary wanted to reach Haining that night, if possible, from whence they could take a boat to Ningpo. So they all passed through the north gate. When a third of the way through the city, the coolies stopped to rest, saying they could not carry his things to Chang'an. Chang they agreed to take them to the south gate. Here other coolies were being called by the servant, and Mr. Taylor walked on, as before, to Chang'an, only four miles. While waiting for them, he engaged other coolies to carry the burden to Haining that night. He waited and waited and waited and wondered why they did not come. He thought the servant might have gone to see his friend and would come on that evening. Had not his feet been sore and blistered, he would have gone back to look for them. At last, Mr. Taylor began to make inquiry. He finally learned that a bamboo box and a bed such as his were, such as were his, had just been carried by a coolie who said he was in a hurry to reach Hining that night. So the traveler concluded that his goods had gone on before him. It was already dark, and as he was too tired to go further, he looked about for an inn where he could lodge for the night and get food. Upon asking for supper, he was told that cold rice and snakes, fried in lamp oil, were all that could be had. Now wishing people to recognize that he was a foreigner, he ordered some, but made very little success at satisfying his hunger. That's gross. Okay. When he asked for a bed, the landlord told him the authorities required a record of lodgers, so he was asked a long list of questions. By this, the man's wife learned that Mr. Taylor was a doctor. So she remarked, I am glad of that, for I have a daughter afflicted with leprosy, and if you will cure her, you shall have your supper and bed for nothing. Then he was curious enough to ask what his supper and bed would cost if paid for, and to his great amusement found they were worth less than three and one-half pence. That night his bed consisted of a board raised on two stools, with only his umbrella and shoes for a pillow. As ten or eleven other fellows were sleeping in the same room, he could take nothing off lest it should be stolen. Early Tuesday morning Mr. Taylor arose, but had to wait a long time for breakfast. He was also delayed in getting change for a dollar, which was chipped a little in one or two places, and he lost on the exchange over 300 cash, which meant much while on that journey. Afterwards, he set out in search of his servant and goods. No news at all could he get of them, so he went on to Hining. The distance was eight miles, and it was afternoon when he reached the northern suburb. There he began to make inquiry for the lost belongings. 
He was told that outside the east gate he might find them, for it was near there that the sea junks called. In vain the search was made. While he was sitting to rest a few minutes, several persons from the Mandarin's office came to ask about his business. By and by, one of the men in the tea shop said, A bamboo box and a bed, such as you describe, were carried past here half an hour ago. You had better go to the south gate and inquire there. Mr. Taylor engaged a man to make a thorough search everywhere, offering to reward him well if he were successful. But when the man returned, he had no news of the lost box. It was then late, and the weary, foot-sore foot traveler asked this man to help him find lodging for the night. At the first two places, the people were willing to receive him, but when they noticed a man following of whom they evidently were afraid, they refused to give Mr. Taylor a bed. The third place promised lodging, so tea was brought in and the man paid off. But immediately after the man left, officials came in, and soon Mr. Taylor was told he could not be entertained there that night. A young man felt sorry and said, Never mind, come with me, and if you cannot get better lodging, you shall sleep at our house. But his people were unwilling. More and more weary he was becoming. At last someone promised a bed, but it would be necessary for him to wait in a tea shop until the crowd retired that had gathered about the door. So on they waited until past midnight. Then the young man escorting him could not find the place, but led him to quite another part of the city, at there, and there, at about two o'clock in the morning, left him to spend the night as best he could. Wow. That sucks. Okay, so that was chapter 13. We'll start chapter 14 tomorrow. Um... Yeah, not much to go. 14, 15, 16, 17, very short chapters, 18, 19, and 20. Oh, yeah, I did say there's 20 chapters. Yeah, very short chapters left. Um, possibly we'll finish this book on Friday. Possibly. Um. Tomorrow is no podcast, um, so I can work on the blog, and I didn't even get to a blog last week. Oh, last week was just so packed, but uh, anyway, interesting what this guy's having to go through. All right, well... We are almost done with our story of the uh, first very notable, successful missionary to inland China from the 1850s, James Hudson Taylor. That might be somebody we'll run into in heaven. Wouldn't it be neat? We'd be like, hey, we read your story. So anyway, I will let you go. And I pray you have a blessed day.